Well, welcome uh, to uh, this Abide Project production. Uh, my name is Cedric Parcells. I'm the pastor of Door Christian Reform Church in Door, Michigan. And today I'm going to be reading through my A More Accurate History of Gravamina. And there are some footnotes uh, in this work. And if you'd like to look at those footnotes, you can go to the abideproject.org. And we have a link to uh, this series, and you can uh, check out my work. So with no further ado, I will read the work. A More Accurate History of Gravamina. Introduction. Last year, I set out to explain why I believe that the denominational office's interpretation of confessional difficulty gravamina is not only incorrect, but also immoral and likely to prove damaging to the CRC's confessional integrity. Some of the arguments that I used in those articles were included in an overture that my counsel sent to Classis Granville, and in January, Classis Granville adopted my counsel's overture and has sent it on to Synod 2023. Interestingly, on the same day that Classis Granville met to discuss my counsel's overture, the denominational offices decided to publish what would eventually become the first of two articles by Professor Kathy Smith, Professor of Church Order at Calvin Theological Seminary, on the topic of confessional difficulty gravamina. In her first article entitled Gravamin, What It Is and How to Use It, Professor Smith reaffirms her commitment to the denominational office's interpretation of confessional difficulty gravamina and attempts to justify that interpretation by appealing to CRC church history. Highlighting the importance of these historical claims to her argument, the denominational offices published a second article by Professor Smith a few days later entitled Summary of the History Behind the Guidelines for Gravamina. As Professor Smith tells the story, Confessional difficulty gravamina existed in the CRC long before Synod 1976 decided to give them that name. According to Professor Smith, we know that only two confessional difficulty gravamina have reached Synod, one in the 1940s that was not resolved before the office bearer passed away, and one in the 1970s that Synod decided to classify as a confessional difficulty gravamen. In her second article, Professor Smith reiterates this claim with emphasis, arguing that the Harry Boer case in the 1970s was not the first confessional difficulty gravamen. Henry de Moore, in his Christian Reformed Church Order Commentary, pages 48 through 49, writes of the Dietrich H. Krominger case in 1947, in which that office bears gravamen went all the way to synod. It's important to keep in mind what exactly Professor Smith and the denominational offices are referring to here when they use the term confessional difficulty gravamen. On their view, a confessional difficulty gravamen is a gravamen in which an office bearer who disagrees with a doctrine contained in the confessions does not call for a revision of the confessions, but instead asks their local council for an exemption from having to believe the doctrine in question. That is, a confessional difficulty gravamen, according to Professor Smith, is a me mechanism by which a council can grant an office bearer an exception to a doctrine contained in the confessions. For example, suppose that you believe, contrary to Belgic Confession Article 24, that sinners are not justified through faith alone apart from works, 
but you still want to serve as a minister in the CRC. Suppose further that you are an office bearer at a church that doesn't care what your views are on this, and that you don't want to go through all the hassle of asking the church to revise its confessions. In that case, according to Professor Smith, you should submit a confessional difficulty gravamen to your local council. If they agree with you that your disagreement with Article 24 is not really that big a deal, then you can remain an office bearer in the CRC. Despite your disagreement with the CRC on the doctrine of justification, your council can still delegate you to classes and your classes can still delegate you to synod. Of course, your local council might put some restrictions on what you can teach, but that is left to their discretion. So this is what Professor Smith and the denominational offices believe the CRC has permitted with regard to confessional subscription since at least the 1940s. But is this true? Does the CRC have a long history of allowing office bearers to take exception to her confessions? Was this what Synod 1976 understood itself to be allowing when it adopted our current guidelines for gravamina? To compress a very long story into one word, the answer is no. What the denominational offices and Professor Smith claim is almost certainly false. From its earliest days, the CRC has required its office bearers to subscribe unconditionally to its confessions. It is not the case that what Professor Smith and the denominational offices refer to as confessional difficulty gravamina have a long history in our church. To the contrary, they are a relatively recent innovation adopted by some CRC churches over the last 30 years or so without official support from Synod with the intention of enabling some nice people to serve in a denomination for which they are theologically ill-suited. Those are my claims. Now I need to back them up. So in the articles that are attached, we will examine the CRC's approach to confessional subscription and gravamina more closely. In part one, we will set the stage by taking a closer look at what the CRC's form of subscription required of its office bearers before between 1912 and 2012. In part two, we will examine the Crominga case, 1945 to 1947, that Professor Smith mentions in her articles. There we will see that Professor Crominga's gravamen was not what Professor Smith claims it to have been. In part three, we will look at a couple of cases from the 1950s and the 1960s, where we will see that the CRC continued to expect unconditional subscription from its office bearers. Then, in Part 4, we will turn to the fascinating story of Dr. Harry R. Boer and how his decades-long crusade to revise the canons of Dort eventually led to the creation of our guidelines for gravamina. Contrary to Professor Smith's claim, we will find that the Boer case is intimately tied into how Synod 1976 thought about the nature of confessional difficulty gravamina and of how they ought to function. In part five, we will ask whether Dr. Bohr's case is, as Professor Smith claims, a unique case, whose relevance to our current situation is questionable. Finally, in part six, I will give an explanation for why the illicit practice of granting exceptions to our confessions may have taken off in some churches during the 1980s and 1990s. Hopefully, by working through these articles, local councils, classes, and synodical delegates will have a better understanding of the history of gravamina in our denomination, and as a result, be in a better position to ensure that they are used properly. Part 1. Confessional Subscription 
From its beginning, the Christian Reformed Church, CRC, has practiced a strict form of confessional subscription. Unlike our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian churches, we have never allowed our office bearers to take exception to any of the doctrines contained in our confessions. It is true that we have much higher expectations than our Presbyterian brethren when it comes to church membership as well, but unlike with our office bearers, we have in the past allowed some church members under certain conditions to take exceptions. As I pointed out before, when we understand the history of the origins of the CRC, our practice with regard to confessional subscription is not all that surprising. All of our early leaders were men and women who had come from churches that had seceded from the state Netherlands Reformed Church in 1834. Among the reasons for their secession was the state church's decision in 1816 to change the way it practiced confessional subscription. Whereas the state church allowed ministers to take exception to the confessions, the seceders of 1834 believed that this should not be allowed. It should not surprise us, then, that when some of these seceders set about establishing the CRC, they required their office-bearers to unconditionally subscribe to the three forms of unity. The instrument that our CRC forebearers chose for enforcing this unconditional subscription was, again, unsurprisingly, the form of subscription. This form was created by the Great Synod of Dort, 1618-1619, alongside the canons of Dort in an effort to purge Arminianism from the state Netherlands Reformed Church. Synod 1912 adopted a very slightly amended version of this form, and the form remained essentially the same until it was replaced a century later by the Covenant for Office Bearers. For those who are interested, the United Reformed Churches returned to using the pre-1988 version of the form of subscription after their secession from the CRC in the 1990s. From 1912 until it was replaced in 2012, the form of subscription required candidates to make certain declarations and promises before they could enter into service. First and foremost, a candidate had to declare that they were wholeheartedly persuaded that all the articles and points of doctrine contained in our confessions fully agree with the Word of God. Not only that, but they also had to declare that they rejected all errors that militate against this doctrine, and particularly those errors which were condemned by the Synod of Dort. As the report to Synod 1976 put it, these declarations were intentionally written in order to secure a candidate's watertight commitment to Orthodox Reform doctrine. No exceptions were to be allowed. Having affirmed their unreserved commitment to Orthodox doctrine, and having affirmed their rejection of every teaching that contradicts it, the form of subscription required subscribers to make four promises. First, a subscriber promised diligently to teach and faithfully to promote the aforesaid doctrine. Second, they promised to refute and contradict any doctrine that conflicted with them. We should note in passing how hard, if not impossible, it would be for an honest subscriber to, the, to keep these promises and then turn around and allow other office bearers to take exception to our confessions. Office bearers were bound by oath to refute views that contradicted the confessions. They were to exercise themselves in keeping the church free from such errors, not to make room for them. The final two promises the form of subscription required of candidates had to do with how they would behave if they ever came to have difficulties with any of the doctrines contained in the confessions.
First, if difficulties or different sentiments came up, candidates promised that they would neither publicly nor privately propose, teach, or defend these views, either by preaching or writing, until they had first revealed such sentiments to the consistory, classes, or synod. These church assemblies would then have the responsibility to examine the office bearer's difficulty and render a judgment on it. According to Van Dellen and Monsma, upon reaching their judgment, the assemblies had two options. They could either, one, call for a revision of the confessions, or two, attempt to persuade the office bearer of his or her error. If an office bearer persisted in their error, the assembly was then obligated to suspend, and if they continue to persist, depose the office bearer in question. Finally, by signing the form of subscription, candidates promised that they would always be willing and ready to give an account of their views to the church if the church should have sufficient grounds for suspecting them of holding views contrary to the confessions. Refusal to submit oneself would result in a de facto suspension from office. Before concluding, it's relevant to point out that office bearers who subscribe to the Covenant for Office Bearers today make the same declarations and promises as candidates did prior to 2012. According to the Covenant for Office Bearers and the Church Order, all office bearers must affirm that all the doctrines contained in our confessions fully agree with the Word of God. They promise to promote and defend these doctrines faithfully. Further, they promise that they will communicate their views to the Church if they ever come to have confessional difficulties or if the Church asks. And our Church Order requires consistories to put under special discipline office bearers who obstinately deviate from our confessional teachings. The significance of this history of the form of subscription for our present study is that it places the burden of proof on anyone who would argue that the CRC has a long history of permitting office bearers to take exception to our confessions. If there is evidence that the CRC has a long official history of granting exceptions, we would expect it to be clear and compelling. As we will see in the remainder of this series, however, such evidence does not exist. In fact, the opposite is the case. The requirements that were made of CRC office bearers in 1861 have been defended, repeated, and assumed decade upon decade, and they remain our official requirements today. Part 2. The Crominga Case, 1945 to 1947. According to Professor Smith, the first case that we know of, involving a confessional difficulty gravamen, was that of Professor G. H. Crominga. Professor Crominga was professor of church history at Calvin Theological Seminary from 1928 until his death in 1947. More to the point, he was a premillennialist. And in the early 1940s, Erdman's publishing company approached Professor Krominga to ask whether he would like to write a book on the last things, an offer that he gladly accepted. As the book was going to print, however, he discovered to his dismay that some of his views on the last things were in conflict with the Belgic Confession. Because he was a man of integrity, Professor Krominga told Erdman's to remove the offending chapters from his book, and he then promptly communicated his disagreement to Synod 1945. Looking at Professor Krominga's communication to Synod 1945, it's understandable why Professor Smith might conclude that Professor Krominga's communication was 
what she would call a confessional difficulty gravamen. First, Professor Krominga makes it clear that he disagrees with the Belgic Confession. Second, despite acknowledging his disagreement, Professor Krominga does not call for the Confession's revision. And third, he essentially asks Synod to grant him an exemption from having to believe what the Confession teaches on the point in question. All of this sounds very similar to how Professor Smith and the denominational offices define a confessional difficulty gravamen. If we look closer, however, it becomes clear that there are significant differences between Professor Krominger's communication and what Professor Smith would call a confessional difficulty gravamen. To see these differences, it's important to note that there was considerable debate at Synod 1945 over how to categorize Professor Krominger's communication. Was Professor Krominger's communication a gravamen, that is, a confessional revision gravamen, or was it something else? The 1945 study committee appointed to study Professor Krominger's views concluded that Professor Krominger's communication was essentially a confessional revision gravamen in which the teaching of the Belgic Confession was incriminated. Accordingly, they began by processing Professor Krominger's communication in that way. Professor Krominger, however, disagreed with the 1945 study committee's analysis. He protested that he had not incriminated the Belgic Confession. As he put it, I am not ready to say definitely that the teaching from which I deviate is in conflict with Holy Writ. All I asked from Sid in 1945 in my first communication was substantiation for that teaching from Holy Writ. Lacking that, I see no valid reason for allowing this teaching to stand in the way of a fresh study of the whole eschatological field. This exchange between the 1945 study committee and Professor Krominga is significant in two ways. First, it throws significant doubt on Professor Smith's claim that the conception of a confessional difficulty gravamen was running around in the 1940s. Or at least, if the concept was running around, it hadn't gotten very far in the broader Christian Reformed community. Of the members on the 1945 study committee, there were three pastors in Grand Rapids, one minister in Ann Arbor, one in Holland, Michigan, and one in Chicago. And the minister from Chicago, the Reverend William Koch, had just spent around two years, from 1940 to 1942, serving as the assistant to President Henry Schultz at Calvin College. If the concept of a confessional difficulty gravamen, as Professor Smith understands it, was around in the early 1940s, it is very strange that none of the men on this committee seem to have run into it, or at least applied it to Professor Krominga's case. Second, the exchange between the study committee and Professor Krominga shows that Professor Krominga was not merely asking for, as we would say today, information and or a clarification of the confession, as would be the case if he were submitting something like a confessional difficulty gravamen. Instead, Professor Krominga was asking Sin in 1945 to justify the confession's teaching. Again, according to Professor Krominga, all I asked from Synod 1945 in my first communication was substantiation for the Belgic Confession's teaching from Holy Writ. Lacking that, he says, I see no valid reason for allowing this teaching to stand in the way of a fresh study of the whole eschatological field. Indeed, Professor Krominga later admits that he was, to a certain extent, incriminating the Belgic Confession. I do not incriminate, he says, the Confession, any further than to say 
that it should not stand in the way of a free and all-around discussion of the eschatological field and the problems which that field presents. Accordingly, Professor Krominger's communication is much more in keeping with our requirements for what we would today call a confessional revision gravamen. How then did the case of Professor Grominga turn out? Did Synod overturn the CRC's long-standing policy of requiring unconditional subscription from its office bearers? No. But not as Professor Smith suggests, for the simple reason that Professor Krominga died in 1947 before Synod could act any further on his request. Synod 1946 itself had the opportunity to consider at least two proposals that would have granted Professor Krominga the exemption he had asked for, or at least something like what he had asked for, but it rejected them. The first of these proposals came as a recommendation from the 1945 Study Committee. In an attempt to avoid having to do the work Synod 1945 had given it, namely to conduct a full-scale study of biblical eschatology in order to determine whether Professor Krominga's views were correct and, consequently, whether the confessions were in need of revision, the study committee proposed a pragmatic compromise. They recommended that Synod allow Professor Krominga to openly advocate for his anti-confessional views, provided that he presented them in a hypothetical manner. Synod 1946, however, emphatically rejected this proposal. According to Synod, to adopt this recommendation from the study committee would immediately set a precedent, and the door would be open for anyone in our ministry to voice dissenting views from any statement or doctrine which the church professes in its forms of unity, provided he do so in a same hypothetical manner. Even such doctrines as the atonement, the covenant, and election would not be exempt. Clearly, Synod 1946 was in no mood to give office bearers the freedom to voice dissent from any statement or doctrine which the church professes in its forms of unity. The second proposal came from Professor Krominga himself. This proposal did not appear as a formal recommendation. It was, however, explicitly suggested in a letter Professor Krominga sent to the 1945 Study Committee, a letter which that committee included in its final report to Synod 1946. According to Professor Krominga, one way that Synod 1946 could resolve the problem before them would be to allow office bearers, such as himself, to disagree with the confessional doctrine in question, but nevertheless keep the non-revised wording of the confession in place as a record of what the dominant or prevailing or general conviction both of the confession's authors and of our church constituency at the present is on the point involved. In other words, Professor Krominga was asking Synod to change the CRC's historic policy with regard to confessional subscription. Instead of having to believe all the doctrines contained in the confessions, Professor Krominga was suggesting that Synod could grant him an exception to this one doctrine. Did Synod 1946 take up this proposal? No. Instead, it continued to treat Professor Krominga's communication in the same way that we would treat a confessional revision gravamen today. It appointed a new study committee to do the work that the first study committee had refused to do. Unfortunately, Synod 1946 botched the new study committee's mandate. Clearly, Synod 1946 had wanted to re-examine the biblical basis for the Belgic Confession's teaching. But all they ended up tasking the committee to do was to determine whether or not Professor Krominga's views were in conflict with the confession. Namely, something that everyone already knew to be true, 
Unfortunately, Professor Crumming had died before Synod 1947 could correct Synod 1946's mistake, and the case was dropped. Before concluding, it is worth addressing Professor Smith's claim that her views on the Crumminga case are the views of Dr. Henry Demore. To substantiate this claim, she cites Dr. Demore's Church Order Commentary, pages 48 through 49. Personally, I find Dr. Demore's description of this case to be ambiguous. He never specifies that Professor Crumminga's gravamen was a confessional difficulty gravamen, and even his description of the issues involved in the case, for example, that Professor Krominga had questions about our doctrines concerning the last things, is not very revealing about which category of gravamen he thinks Krominga's communication would best fit. In any case, as we have seen, Professor Krominga didn't just have questions. In essence, Professor Krominga was asking Synod 1945 to either justify the Belgic Confession's teaching or let him publish. This is not a mere request for information and or clarification of the confession. It is a challenge. Synod 1946 saw this and acted accordingly. So in conclusion, as your classes and council meet to discuss Gravamina, don't be misled into thinking that Professor Smith's and the denominational office's approach to Gravamina is one that stretches back all the way to the 1940s. Both the substance of Professor Krominger's communication and the way in which both Synod's 1945 and 1946 dealt with it strongly suggest that Professor Krominger's communication is better characterized as a confessional revision, Gravamen. Furthermore, Synod 1946 was given every opportunity to give Professor Krominger an exception to the doctrine with which he had a difficulty, but it chose not to do so. Instead, Synod's 1945 and 1946 preserved the CRC's historic policy of unconditional subscription. Indeed, we will see further evidence of this in Part 3 when we consider a couple of cases that arose in the 1950s and 60s. Part 3. The 1950s and 1960s. In Part 2 of this series, we saw that Professor Smith's account of the history of confessional difficulty gravamina in our church was inaccurate. Professor Krominga's 1945 gravamen was not what the denominational offices would like us to refer to as a confessional difficulty gravamen. Or at least, if it was, both Synods 1945 and 1946 did not view it that way. Instead, they took it as a basic challenge to the Belgic Confession and set out to determine whether Professor Krominger's views were correct or not. Unfortunately, this examination was halted by Professor Krominger's death in 1947. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, the Christian Reformed Church continued to face other confessional challenges. In 1952, Calvin CRC in Grand Rapids, Michigan, sent an overture to Synod on behalf of Professor Clarence Borsma of Calvin College. Their overture urged Synod to respond to six objections that Professor Borsma had raised against the Belgic Confession. According to Calvin CRC, it was very important for Synod to address Professor Borsma's objections, not only because the objections were beyond the consistory's competence to adjudicate, but more importantly because all ministers, elders, and deacons, professors of Calvin College and Seminary, as well as many Christian school teachers, are required to express their unqualified agreement with the Belgic Confession. Emphasis original. In this, Synod 1952 agreed, citing Calvin CRC's second reason as its ground for appointing a study committee. 
These statements are hard to reconcile with Professor Smith's claims about our denomination's history of confessional subscription. As explained in the introduction, Professor Smith claims that office bearers as early as the 1940s could get an exemption from having to believe all the doctrines contained in our confessions, provided that they submitted a confessional difficulty gravamen. Both Calvin CRC and Synod 1952, however, show us that this was not the case. These church assemblies expected all office bearers to express unqualified agreement with the confessions. The controversy over Professor Borsma's objections carried on until Synod 1961, when Synod essentially said that it had had enough. It was not going to revise the Belgic Confession. It was not long, however, before a new confessional crisis arose. The very next year, in fact, in 1962, Harold Decker, professor of missions at Calvin Theological Seminary from 1955 to 1987, caused an uproar by writing an article in the Reformed Journal in which he gave the impression that he disagreed with the doctrine of limited atonement. This controversy, commonly known as the love of God controversy, continued until Synod 1967 ended debate. In that year, Synod reaffirmed the Reformed doctrine of God's love and reprimanded Professor Decker for having caused so much confusion in the church by his ambiguous and abstract way of writing. Both before and during the love of God controversy, there is strong evidence that the CRC's official policy was still that of unqualified subscription. For example, in 1960, the editor for The Banner, the Reverend John Vanderplug, wrote an editorial for the February 19th edition entitled, Requirements for Signing the Form of Subscription. Commenting on the Form of Subscription's statement that all the doctrines contained in the Confessions fully agree with the Word of God, Vanderplug wrote that, In signing the Form of Subscription in good faith, every office bearer in the CRC binds or commits himself wholeheartedly to the Reformed interpretation of Scripture as this is expressed in the Confessions. By wholeheartedly, Vanderplug went on to explain that he meant that Anyone who signs a form of subscription honestly and advisedly does so without reservations, that is, unconditionally or without qualification. In 1966, that is, just as the 1962 to 1967 controversy was coming to an end, Vanderplug returned in the banner to the topic of confessional subscription. In an article entitled, Form of Subscription, to Sign or Not to Sign, Vanderplug stated that in the CRC, by affixing their signatures to this form of subscription, office bearers in the CRC say that they heartily believe and are persuaded that all the articles and points of doctrine contained in the Confessions do fully agree with the Word of God. In neither his 1960 nor his 1966 article does Vanderplug suggest that those signing the form of subscription could ask their consistories for an exemption to the form of subscription's requirements. In addition to Vanderplug's article, the banner ran a two-part special article by the Reverend Conrad Veenstra in April 1966 entitled, Our Form of Subscription. In his second article, Veenstra reiterated Vanderplug's statements, writing that the wording of our form of subscription precludes that the honest signer has mental reservations. The form does not tolerate a formal or hypocritical signing. The expression, in conscience, means a conscience bound by the word of God, a conscience which does not, as the office bearer signs, accuse, you are not entirely honest. The wording is equivalent to an oath, 
we declare before God and declares that these creeds in no way deviate from the word of God. Again, Wienstra makes no mention of candidates or office bearers having the ability to ask for an exemption. All of this is very strange if Professor Smith's claim is correct that office bearers were allowed to take exception, that is to submit confessional difficulty gravamina, as far back as the 1940s. If there was such a policy, we would expect that Vanderplug and Wienstra would have made some mention of it, given that such a policy would have had significant bearing on the controversy then raging in the church. But they don't. This makes it very unlikely that such a policy existed. Still, it could be argued that the banner is written for a popular audience, and that maybe Vanderplug and Wienstra were simply setting forth the ideal for office bearers. If so, then we should be able to find reference to some kind of exemption policy in a more scholarly publication, such as Vendelin's and Monsma's 1976 Revised Church Order Commentary. However, we don't. According to Vendelin and Monsma, an office bearer who entertains serious doubts or experiences a change of mind in regard to any points of doctrine in the Confessions promises not to advocate these conceptions which are contrary to the accepted Confessions but he will reveal his sentiments to one of our ecclesiastical assemblies. The reason for this, Vendelin and Monsma go on to explain, is because the confessions have been found to be a summary of divine revelation by the churches under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so, in the interest of harmony and unity, and for the sake of the truth of God involved, an office bearer is obligated to reveal his doubts to the churches in order that the churches may together look into the matter revising the creeds if need be, or else attempting to convince the erring brother concerning his misinterpretation of God's word. What is conspicuously absent from Vendelin's and Monsma's account of office bearers submitting their gravamina is any reference to a consistory's ability to grant the office bearer an exception. Upon receiving an office bearer's gravamen, Vendelin and Monsma suggest that a consistory only has two options. Revise the creeds if need be, or else attempt to convince the erring brother concerning his misinterpretation of God's word. No mention is made of a third way in which a consistory accepts a gravamen or grants an exception. In fact, the possibility of an exemption seems ruled out on the grounds that Vendelin and Monsma go on to explain that no office bearer is allowed to persist indefinitely in their disagreement with the church. According to these commentators, the form of subscription requires that an office bearer who has revealed his difficulties to the church must cheerfully submit himself to the conclusions of the consistory, classes, or synod. By submission to the conclusions of the church, Vendelin and Monsma clearly mean that the office bearer promises to repent of his or her errors, that is, to change his mind. If an office bearer refuses to change his mind, then Vendelin and Monsma say, he is by that very fact suspended from office. Formal subs- suspension would have to take place, but his refusal to submit himself to the judgment of the churches, the brother to concerned has virtually suspended himself. Whether or not dis- dip- deposition, removal from office would follow suspension, would depend on the question whether or not the brother concerned persists in his error or errors. In part two of this series, we examine Professor Smith's claim that her understanding of confessional difficulty gravamina is one that has existed in the CRC 
since at least the 1940s. At this point in part three, it should be clear that this is extremely unlikely. Instead, we have seen that the policy of confessional subscription officially set by the CRC in 1861, that is, the policy of unconditional, or as Calvin CRC put it, unqualified subscription, was the CRC's official policy through the 1940s, the 1950s, and through to at least 1969. Still, perhaps things would change in the 1970s. We'll examine that possibility in Part 4. Part 4. The Boer Case, 1975-1977 In Part 3, we saw that throughout the 1950s and 60s, the Christian Reformed Church's official policy with regard to confessional subscription was the same as it had always been. Ministers, elders, and deacons, as well as professors at Calvin College and Calvin Theological Seminary, were required to subscribe unconditionally to all the doctrines contained in the confessions. No exceptions allowed. Furthermore, we saw in Vendelin's and Monsma's revised Church Order Commentary that when an office bearer who, or professor who submitted a gravamen presented it to their consistory, their consistory had only two options. They could either, one, attempt to persuade the office bearer or professor that they were in error, or two, they could send the gravamen to synod for review and for a potential revision of the confessions. So far, then, we have not found any clear or compelling evidence for what Professor Smith and the denominational offices claim about confessional difficulty gravamina, that is, that they permit office bearers to take exception to our creeds and confessions. In this article, we turn to consider the events that led to Synod 1976's deciding to adopt our current guidelines for gravamina. In her summary of the history behind the guidelines for gravamina, Professor Smith strongly suggests that we should put significant distance between Synod 1976's decision to adopt the guidelines for gravamina and the way that it addressed Harry Boer's gravamen. Given her endorsement of the 2022 FAQ, her wanting to create significant distance between these two issues makes sense, because if we allow Synod 1976's handling of the Boer case to define the way in which we interpret our guidelines, then her interpretation of a confessional difficulty gravamen is shown not only to have no real basis in the text, but in fact to be contrary to Synod's original intent. In other words, such a close connection would show that in establishing our guidelines, Synod 1976 did not envision itself as creating a way for councils and classes to grant exceptions to confessional doctrines. Unfortunately for Professor Smith's argument, however, there is abundant evidence that Synod 1976's decision to adopt our guidelines and its handling of the Boer case were intimately related. In fact, it is not too much to say that without the Boer case, we wouldn't even have the category of confessional difficulty gravamina to begin with. The character at the heart of our story is a person by the name of Dr. Harry R. Boer, who lived between 1913 and 1999. By his own admission, Dr. Boer had harbored deep misgivings about the doctrine of reprobation since at least 1963. In fact, in that year, he wrote a gravamen to send a synod which would have asked for the doctrine to be removed from the canons, but he never sent it. The love of God controversy was heating up at the time, 
and he did not want to appear to be making a political statement in support of his friend, Harold Decker, professor of missions at Calvin Theological Seminary. After the love of God controversy had more or less ended in 1967, Dr. Bohr decided once again to take up the work of trying to get the CRC to revise the canons of Dort. On furlough from the mission field in 1968, Dr. Bohr approached his consistory and asked them to provide him with the biblical basis for the doctrine of reprobation. His consistory refused to do so, saying that his request for information needed to take the form of a gravamen, that is, a confessional revision gravamen. As a result, Dr. Bohr appealed to Classus Chicago South, a request which the Classus also refused for the same reason as his consistory. At this point, Dr. Bohr had the opportunity to appeal to Synod, but he held off yet again for several years. In preparation for his discussions with his consistory and classes, Dr. Bohr had engaged in an extensive study of the form of subscription, and he had come to the conclusion that the form of subscription itself needed to be revised before the CRC could adequately take up his request for a revision of the, con- of the canons. Accordingly, from October 1970 to August 1971, Dr. Bohr published nine articles in the Reformed Journal in which he attempted to make his case for a revision of the form of subscription. Dr. Bohr's hope was that someone would read his articles and lead the charge to revise the form of subscription. But after several months of waiting, it became clear that he was going to have to request that revision himself. So in September 1972, Dr. Bohr submitted an overture to Classes Chicago South asking it to petition Synod for a new form of subscription. Although Professor Bohr had a number of things he did not like about the form of subscription, he had two primary criticisms. First, Dr. Bohr argued that the form of subscription's approach to creedal revision did not reflect a reformed doctrine of the church, and in particular, the reformed doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. According to Professor Bohr, as written, the form of subscription limited the number of people who could debate any proposed confessional revision. On his interpretation, only members of the assembly handling the gravamen could debate it. All other office bearers and professors were required to remain silent. For Dr. Bohr, this was an unacceptable hierarchalism, more in keeping with Catholicism than Reformed Christianity. Bohr's second criticism of the form of subscription was that it required an unconditional, wholehearted subscription to all the doctrines contained in the confessions. This, he argued, put the confessions on the same level of authority as Holy Scripture, and it made virtually everyone who signed the form into a double-minded hypocrite, because very few, if anyone, actually believed everything that the confessions taught. For example, hardly anyone believed that Paul wrote Hebrews, Belgic Confession Article 4, or that they should detest the Anabaptists, Belgic Confession Article 36. Accordingly, to require office bearers to sign the form of subscription without mental reservation was an act of spiritual abuse. Classes Chicago South refused to adopt Dr. Boer's overture. Nevertheless, it did have sympathy with his first criticism. As a result, the Classes overtured Synod 1973 to add a line to the form of subscription, which they hoped would address their and Dr. Boer's shared concern. Dr. Boer himself appealed the decision of his classes. 
Accordingly, Synod 1973 had two overtures before it having to do with revising the form of subscription. In handling them, Synod chose to reject Dr. Bohr's overture and to adopt Classic Chicago South's. Yet it decided that it should postpone final ratification of its decision until Synod 1974. When Synod 1974 met in June of that year, it had a number of overtures on its docket, both for and against the ratification of Synod 1973's decision. Because of the importance of the form of subscription for both the life of the CRC and its ecumenical relationships, Synod 1974 decided to postpone ratification once again. At the same time, they appointed a committee to study revision of the form of subscription. This committee would solicit the views of CRC churches as well as the college and seminary, and they would also communicate with our Reformed ecumenical partners. Having gotten Synod 1973 and 1974 to act on revising the form of subscription, Dr. Bohr decided that the time had finally come for him to start pressing for what he had always truly wanted, to revise the Canons of Dort. Instead of submitting a gravamen, however, as he had planned to do in 1963, Dr. Bohr decided to send a communication to sit in 1975. In this communication, he asked the same question he had asked his consistory in classes in 1968. What is the biblical basis for the canon's doctrine of reprobation? Upon receiving his communication, Synod 1975 did two things. First, Synod agreed that Dr. Bohr had raised a legitimate concern to which the church should address herself. At the same time, however, Synod was confused about the nature of Dr. Bohr's communication. On the one hand, Dr. Bohr was apparently asking the church to justify its teaching on reprobation, a direct challenge to the confessions. On the other hand, According to Dr. Bohr, his communication was neither an appeal nor a gravamen. It was simply a request for information. So what was the nature of this communication, and how should Synod process it? Synod 1975 decided that the question of how to categorize and process Dr. Bohr's communication needed to be answered before addressing his concerns about the canons of Dort. Accordingly, Synod appointed a study committee to determine the status of Dr. Bohr's communication and to spell out a process for how synods should deal with similar communications in the future. The result was that as Synod 1976 convened, it had two reports on its agenda that had directly originated from Dr. Bohr's actions, the Committee to Study Revision of the Form of Subscription and the Committee to Study Dr. Bohr's Communication. At this point, we are ready to consider the relationship between Dr. Bohr's communication to Synod 1975 and 1976's decision to create the category of confessional difficulty gravamina. An important detail missing from Professor Smith's analysis of Synod 1976 and her summary is that Synod 1976 handed both of the above reports to the same Synodical Advisory Committee for reflection and for recommendations. This is important because while the Bohr case, as she says, was a separate matter from the question of the revision of the form of subscription, the two were nevertheless directly related to the reflections of the advisory committee. In fact, in its report to Senate 1976, the advisory committee explicitly stated that its recommendation to distinguish between two types of gravamina directly arose 
out of its reflecting on the two study committee reports together. As the advisory committee put it, as the advisory committee for both reports 38, to revise the form of subscription, and report 45, Dr. Boer's communication, we wish to point out that the authors of report 38 follow the traditional Christian reform distinction between difficulties and different sentiments, and gravamen. But the authors of Report 45 adopt the broader scope of gravamen as defined in the Christliche Encyclopedie. Not only are overtures for creedal revision regarded as gravamina, but questions of difficulties and different sentiments also fall within the area of gravamina. Your advisory committee then, in order to do justice to a traditional view of gravamina held in our churches, that is Report 38, as well as to the definition of the Christliche Encyclopedie, has chosen to speak of gravamen in a twofold sense. In addition to this direct link between the emergence of our guidelines and the Boer case, it is also significant to point out that both the Advisory Committee and Synod 1976 felt the need to vote twice on ratifying the distinction between the two types of gravamina. The first ratification took place on the morning of June 15th in conjunction with synods dealing with the proposed revision of the form of subscription. The second ratification took place on the morning of June 16th, when synod was dealing with how to address the communication from Dr. Bohr. Procedurally, of course, this double ratification was redundant. Nevertheless, it shows the close connection between the new category of confessional difficulty gravamina and the case of Dr. Bohr, in the minds of both of, the advi- both of the advisory committee and of other synodical delegates. Accordingly, there is no justification in the evidence for the gaping chasm that Professor Smith would have us open between the 1976 guidelines for Gravamina and the way that Synod 1976 handled the case of Dr. Bohr. To understand the one, we must understand the other. To properly interpret the one, we need to examine the way in which Synod processed the other. The conclusion reached in the last section is all the more significant when we consider how Synod 1976 processed Dr. Bohr's newly minted confessional difficulty gravamen. Unlike Professor Smith's and the denominational office's view of confessional difficulty gravamina, Synod 1976 did not grant Dr. Bohr an exemption from having to confess the doctrine of reprobation. Instead, it appointed a committee of knowledgeable people to meet with Dr. Boer in order to help him resolve his difficulties. If, after meeting with that committee, Dr. Boer was still not satisfied, Synod 1976 permitted that Dr. Boer would be allowed to submit a confessional revision gravamen. Unfortunately, the synodical committee appointed to meet with Dr. Boer never had a chance. Before they could meet, Dr. Boer informed the committee that he had decided to submit a confessional revision gravamen to Synod 1977. Whether this was the same gravamen he had already written in 1963, we don't know. In any case, Synod's 1980 and 1981 eventually ruled that the canons were not in need of revision. Before concluding, it is relevant to point out that Dr. Bohr himself never gave any indication that he believed that Synod 1976 had created a process whereby office bearers could receive an exemption from having to affirm without reservation all the doctrines contained in our confessions. In fact, in December 1976, Dr. Bohr published an article in the Reformed Journal 
reflecting on Synod 1976's decisions. When it came to addressing his first concern, that is, the form of subscription's hierarchicalism, Dr. Bohr wrote that he thought that Synod 1976 had done reasonably well. When it came to his second problem, however, that is, that the form of subscription required wholehearted, unconditional subscription, he thought that Synod 1976 had failed miserably. According to Dr. Bohr, a person of goodwill who signs the form of subscription can only suffer the double tongue and the hypocritical stance in which the signing of the form involves them. Either they sign their name to incontestable error and to doctrines that stand in the shadow of great and acknowledged uncertainty as fully agreeing with the word of God, or they refuse office or leave it. Again, commenting on the form's statement that all the doctrines do fully agree with the word of God, Dr. Bohr comments, there is nothing in that statement about exemptions. For Dr. Bohr then, Synod 1976 had done nothing to change the CRC's approach to confessional subscription. Nor did Synod 1980 or 1981 change Dr. Bohr's views on the CRC's approach. In response to Synod 1981's final ruling, Dr. Bohr, now in retirement, published a book in 1983 entitled The Doctrine of Reprobation in the Christian Reformed Church. In this book, he laid out his case against the CRC's handling of his gravamen and continued his denunciation of the CRC's practice of confessional subscription. Instead of praising Synod 1976 for providing a way for CRC office bearers to take exception to the doctrine of reprobation, Dr. Bohr lamented, The form of subscription still requires of all office bearers and all professors of Calvin College and Seminary believing and heartfelt adherence to the teachings of the canons and of the other two creeds as understood in light of the canons. It further requires solemn promises from said subscribers to defend, teach, and otherwise implement these teachings in the church. Professor Smith's recent articles on Gravamina give the impression that her and the denominational office's understanding of a confessional difficulty gravamen is one that has been part of our church's practice of confessional subscription for a very long time. In the last three articles in this series, we have seen that her claim is almost certainly false. Instead, we have seen that from 1861 down to at least 1983, there was no official recognition given to the idea that office bearers could take exception to the doctrines contained in our confessions. But if that is the case, how then do we explain the emergence of this practice among our churches? We will consider that question in part six. Before considering it, however, let us first briefly examine Professor Smith's claim that the way Synod 1976 handled Dr. Bohr's confessional difficulty gravamen is unique. Part 5. Is the Bohr case unique? Most people intuitively recognize that getting married is serious business. It's serious because it's risky. And it's risky Because when someone gets married, they don't know how their circumstances or the circumstances of their spouse are going to change in the future. For example, their spouse may become gravely sick or cause them to go bankrupt. At some point, they may find their spouse no longer attractive. Or perhaps their spouse will undergo changes other than physical, say by undergoing a change in their political views or even their religion. They may even start rooting for Hope College basketball. 
Still, their marriage vows bind them to their spouse. Circumstances change, and they are obligated to adapt. Of course, the risk inherent in getting married is shared in many other oath-bound relationships. Enlisting as a soldier, for example, is inherently risky, for the same reason as with marriage. A person might enlist believing that it is highly unlikely that war will break out during their tour of service. In their own minds, they haven't enlisted to fight. They just wanted to give back a little. And besides, they look good in dress blues. Nevertheless, when war breaks out, they are still expected to pick up a rifle and run into battle. Circumstances change, and they are obligated to adapt. The same goes for office bearers in the Christian Reformed Church. When a person becomes an office bearer in the CRC, they enter into a covenant, an oath-bound relationship with the CRC. As explained in part one of this series, an office bearer, upon signing the covenant for office bearers, declares their heartfelt belief that all the doctrines contained in our confessions are doctrines that fully agree with the Word of God. Because of that, they promise to promote and defend these doctrines faithfully, and they promise to conform their preaching, teaching, writing, serving, and living to them. Importantly, church members who become office bearers enter into this covenant knowing that the creeds and confessions may change. The CRC may decide that it was wrong about some teaching and revise its confession. Or it might decide that it needs to add some teaching to the confessions. Or it may interpret the confessions in order to ensure that people within the church are not misled by some false teaching. And just as the boy who joined the military simply to play soldier still has to pick up his rifle when ordered to fight, so CRC office bearers are obligated to adapt when the CRC either subtracts from, adds to, interprets, or even reinterprets its confessions. It's for this reason that I am perplexed by one of the arguments that Professor Smith makes in her summary of the history behind the guidelines for Gravamina. As I've commented before, in that article, Professor Smith attempts to distance Synod 1976's handling of the Boer case from its establishing of our guidelines for Gravamina. She does this, apparently, because if we take Synod 1976's handling of Dr. Boer's gravamen as our precedent for how to handle confessional difficulty gravamen today, then her and the denominational office's interpretation of confessional difficulty gravamina is false, and all those office bearers who have taken exception to Synod 2022's confessional interpretation are actually acting in violation of the covenant for office bearers. Despite attempting to distance Synod 1976's handling of the two issues, Professor Smith nevertheless acknowledges that there was some connection between the two, even if she does not accurately convey the true extent and depth of that connection. The decisions of Synod 1976, Professor Smith writes, do provide some background for understanding the guidelines for Gravamina in the supplement to Article 5. Having made this concession, however, Professor Smith attempts to dissuade readers from oppressing this connection too hard. According to Professor Smith, Dr. Bohr's case is certainly unique, and its applic applicability to our situation today is questionable. How the Bohr case is unique, Professor Smith does not explicitly say. It cannot be that Professor Smith thinks that it is unique because it was a confessional difficulty gravamen. As we have seen, 
She clearly believes that confessional difficulty gravamen were around long before sin in 1976. Neither can it be the case that the Bohr case is unique because sin in 1976 did not grant Dr. Bohr an exception to the doctrine of reprobation. If that is why Professor Smith believes the Bohr case is unique, then she is simply begging the question. She's assuming the very thing that she needs to prove, namely that sin in 1976 understood confessional difficulty gravamina to be usable in that way. Only once she has demonstrated that sin in 1976 thought that a confessional difficulty gravamen could be used to grant exceptions, can we even start wondering why Synod didn't grant one in this case? But she has yet to demonstrate that Synod 1976 thought confessional difficulty gravamina could be used to grant exceptions. And I have provided more than enough evidence in the last four articles to cast doubt on any such interpretation of Synod 1976's actions. Assuming then that Professor Smith is not contradicting her own history and that she's not begging the question, it seems that the only remaining possibility is that for Professor Smith, Dr. Bohr's confessional difficulty gravamen is unique because it was not submitted in response to a synod's having added an interpretation of a confession to the requirements for signing the covenant for office bearers. If this interpretation of Professor Smith's claim is correct, however, then it should be obvious at this point why Professor Smith is wrong that the Bohr case is unique in any relevant way. The only difference between Dr. Bohr's confessional difficulty gravamen and the gravamina being submitted, mostly by ministers today, is that the doctrine Dr. Bohr had a problem with was one that had been in the confession for 400 years, whereas the doctrine in question today is one that, arguably, was added on June 15, 2022. But to say that this makes Dr. Bohr's case so unique as to be inapplicable to our situation today is ridiculous. No one was forced to become an office bearer in the CRC and to sign the covenant for office bearers. And those who signed it knew, or at least ought to have known, that the church could alter its confessions or its interpretation of the confessions at any time. At the very least, ministers ought to have known that this could happen because Professor DeMore and Professor Smith were their teachers. The fact that some office bearers are now unhappy with the change in their circumstances does not absolve them of their responsibilities with regard to the oath that they took when subscribing to the covenant for office bearers. And such unhappiness clearly does not warrant any ad hoc reinterpretations of our guidelines for gravamina. In conclusion, I want to express my emphatic agreement with Professor Smith when she writes that the Boer proceedings over many years and the adoption of the gravamen process during those years shows a denomination that realized that being a confessionally vigorous church required mechanisms for honest theological dialogue and mutual respect within a broader framework of confessional fidelity. Like Professor Smith, I am all for vigorous confessional conversations marked by honest theological dialogue and mutual respect. All I am saying is that the broader framework of confessional fidelity as described by Professor Smith and the denominational offices is not the broader framework of confessional fidelity that was established by 1976 and that we find expression in our church order today. Gravamina do not give CRC office bearers license to take exception to our shared confessions of faith. Part 6. A Time to Confess In this series of articles, 
I have sought to lay out a more accurate history of the Christian Reformed Church's approach to Gravamina. Contrary to Professor Smith's claims, the CRC's official policy from 1857 to 1976 was that our office bearers had to subscribe unconditionally to the conditions contained in our confessions. And sit in 1976's invention of confessional difficulty gravamina did nothing to change that policy. If so, however, then where did the idea come from that councils can allow office bearers to take exception to our confessions? To answer this question, it is relatively simple. Some churches and institutions have found the CRC's policy towards subscription too costly to put into practice. For example, suppose you serve a smaller church, and there is a person whom your council believes would make a great elder or deacon, but there's only one problem. The person in question cannot sign the covenant for office bearers. Maybe they disagree with our doctrines of infant baptism, election, or a limited atonement. What do you do? Or consider the minister who signed the covenant for office bearers 10 years ago in good faith, but now disagrees with the confessions. After reading Bart, perhaps they now no longer believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God. After reading Wolterstorff, perhaps they no longer believe in God's eternality. After reading a synodical report, perhaps they no longer believe that Christ's spiritual order for his church requires a congregation of elders and deacons. They grew up in the CRC. It has played an important role in their Dutch self-identity. All their credentialing has prepared them for ministry in the CRC. All their work experience has been in the CRC. They enjoy their CRC community. Their kids go to the local Christian school. Their family lives in the parsonage. They come to you and your counsel to explain that they no longer agree with the confessions on these points. What do you do? These and similar scenarios have played out in the CRC for decades. And because some councils didn't want to have to leave people off their list of potential elders and deacons, and because they did not want to instruct their minister to submit a confessional revision gravamen, they pursued illicit solutions. Perhaps the oldest solution has been for councils and office bearers to turn a blind eye when their colleagues voice disagreement with the confessions. Writing in December 1976, Harry Boer wrote in the Reformed Journal that, among the more or less theologically conscious elements of the CRC, a common acceptance of a certain unmeasured, undefined slice of the creeds had become, let us say, negotiable. According to Boer, when working among members of this self-conscious theological community, a minister could openly reject certain doctrines without any fear of reprisal. Other doctrines they could reject, for example reprobation, but they were to keep more or less quiet about it so as to not upset the unenlightened. And some doctrines they could not openly deny at all because they were considered too central to the community's faith. Bohr believed that this whole situation was dishonest and unworthy of a church of Christ, but it was, he argued, the unofficial arrangement that the CRC's leadership, right, left, and center, had more or less agreed to tolerate. Uncomfortable with turning a blind eye, however, some churches in the 1980s and 1990s chose a more radical solution. They believed that the best way forward was simply to not require office bearers to subscribe to the confessions at all. In Overture to Synod 2004, Classes BC Southeast admitted that many of its churches 
no longer used the form of subscription because many individuals had difficulty signing it. Synod 2004 mildly rebuked these churches, but it also agreed to send out a questionnaire to inquire of each congregation as to the methods by which the churches comply with the provisions of Article 5. The results of that study led to our current covenant for office bearers. It's in this broader context of churches trying to evade the CRC's official policy of unconditional subscription that some churches most likely started misusing confessional difficulty gravamina in the 1980s and 1990s. Professor Smith, in her summary, says that when the Church of the Savior in South Bend, Indiana, asked Dr. Alvin Plantinga whether he would serve as an elder, Dr. Plantinga submitted a confessional difficulty gravamen in which he expressed his disagreement with the Synod of Dort's teaching on election and reprobation. Professor Smith says that she cannot exactly pinpoint when this took place, but since Dr. Plantinga was at Notre Dame from 1983 until 2010, we can definitively say that it was at some point in that time period. We don't know exactly how it came about that someone at Church of the Savior thought to use confessional difficulty gravamen in this way. Was it the council's own invention? Or did the council reach out in some way to Henry Moore, professor of church order at Calvin Theological Seminary from 1986 to 2010? We don't know. What we do know, however, is that what the Church of the Savior did was illicit. I mentioned Professor DeMore in this last connection because I think Professor DeMore has probably done more than anyone else to mainstream this third approach to confessional evasion. As far as I have found, Professor DeMore's 2010 Church Order Commentary is the first source to suggest that a confessional difficulty gravamen permits councils to grant office bearers an exemption from having to confess all the doctrines contained in our confessions. He appears to make this case completely dependent on the phrase in our church order that says a council must render a judgment on an office bearer's confessional difficulty gravamen. According to Professor DeMore, this judgment is about whether the council can tolerate the office bearer's disagreement. But as I have argued before, the accuracy of this interpretation is highly improbable. There is nothing in our history to suggest that Synod 1976 intended to allow exceptions by way of confessional difficulty gravamina, and CRC commentators from Harry Boer to Bob Godfrey were still saying in the late 1980s that the CRC required unconditional subscription. The inaccurate nature of Professor DeMore's interpretation is also suggested by the fact that churches farther afield from West Michigan during the 1990s, such as those in classes species southeast, decided to take a radically different approach to confessional evasion by foregoing confessional subscription altogether. It seems unlikely that those churches would have adopted such a radical measure if it had been common knowledge that confessional difficulty gravamina could be used as Professor DeMore suggests. To conclude this series, our current controversy over gravamina represents the clash of two visions for the CRC. On the one hand, there are those who want the CRC to remain committed to our original purpose, namely of raising a confessional Christian and Reformed banner over the North American religious landscape. And we want this because we actually believe what we say when we sign the Covenant for Office Bearers, namely that these doctrines fully agree with the Word of God. Some of us may be open to synod 
creating a way for office bearers to take some exceptions to our confessions, but it cannot be on the model offered by Professor Smith and the denominational offices. That approach seems to us to be both immoral and toxic to confessionalism. On the other hand, there are those who seem to want the CRC to become nothing more than a smaller version of the Presbyterian Church USA, a denomination in which virtually anyone, regardless of their commitment to confessional reformed doctrine, can serve an ordained ministry. Accordingly, there is more at stake at Synod 2023 than whether our denomination continues to require office bearers to confess the Bible's teaching on unchastity. Synod 2023's response to overtures asking for a clarification of the Gravamen process, such as the one coming from my own classes of Classes Granville, will determine which of the two visions mentioned above will direct the CRC in the future. The question our synodical delegates must answer then is, are we to be a confessionally reformed denomination or not?